0: Up in the chariot the prophet goes Leaving his successor to deal with God's foes Elisha's now the man with Elijah's cloak Elisha's now the water parter prophesying bloke We're expecting the judgment to come Instead Elisha raises a Shunammite son A poison stew is healed The sons of prophets fed As Elisha multiplies 20 loaves of bread But the assassins finally arrive None of God's enemies is left alive
1: Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible. I'm Nancy Guthrie. Help Me Teach the Bible is a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway, a not for profit publisher of the ESV Bible Christian Books and Tracks. Learn more at crossway.org. My guest today is Reverend Dr. Andrew Satch, who's pastor of Grace Church Greenwich. Andrew, thank you for being willing to once again help us teach the Bible.
0: Good to see you, Nancy. Happy New Year. Yes, we're talking on New Year's Day. We
1: both are up early on New Year's Day to have this conversation. And honestly, though, as I was awaking this morning, I thought, what a great way to start my year having a conversation with an excellent Bible teacher about a great book of the Bible. I mean, I really can't think of a better way to start the year. (laughs) Now, tell us a little bit about your history. So you studied natural sciences at the University of Cambridge, and then I see that you got a doctorate. What's your doctorate in?
0: Oh, it's in ears. Well, it's how the brain processes the signal from ears. You have a doctorate in that. I spent three years of my life in a soundproof room listening to thousands of clicks, basically. So,
1: so, (laughs) (laughs) and you've had a lot of ministry since then. How do you feel like you use that education?
0: I think, well, I I actually got converted at university. So that was the first step Mm. towards ministry. So my first year at Cambridge, I became a Christian. And then I gradually got more and more involved in campus ministry. And at the end, towards the end of my doctorate, I was probably doing more Bible teaching than I was doing science. And that was the Mm. signal that it was time to make a change. What did you think you were going to do with that degree? Oh, I was I was interested in academia. I thought I might be a lecturer or researcher. Yeah. But then other things intervened. And I was, um, I mean, I, I was very fortunate. The Lord was kind to me because most of my experiments worked, which is not normal in doctorates. So I just had quite a lot of spare time. And so I was able to do a lot of ministry thanks to that. Uh, but I realized it wouldn't always be like that. So.
1: Well, you were at St. Helens Bishopsgate for a while, and now you are the pastor at Grace Church Greenwich. Uh, you've also written a number of books. There's a series of Dig Deeper books. Uh, the one that's available here in the States is Dig Deeper, which was published by University in the UK, but Crossway here in the States, which is yep. really just about basic Bible interpretation and teaching skills. You did Dig Even Deeper, Unearthing Old Testament Treasure, Dig Deeper into the Gospels. And as my understanding you are working on a Dig Deeper on the book that we're going to talk about today. Uh, second kings
0: that's right yeah the titles get less imaginative so one of my friends <laughs> said eventually the book will be called rock bottom but <laughs> but i'm planning one on one and two kings
1: okay excellent and you've been teaching through one and two kings what do you think some of the challenges are to the average bible teacher in regard to teaching second kings
0: I think teaching narrative is the challenge. We have to teach it differently to how we teach an epistle. I actually really enjoy it because all of the illustrations are in the text. You don't have to think of a story to illustrate the text because this is a story. And I think if you can tell the story in your preaching, then it's already engaging and exciting. So that the author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is a literary genius. Um, often there's a surprise or a twist. and um, There's little playful... I mean, so I think 1st and 2nd Kings is very amusing. I think it's supposed to be funny. And all of that's actually there in the text. But the challenge is to... I suppose if you were just to turn it into a doctrinal sermon, you could destroy the, the story. The idea is there is a doctrine there. There's some truth that's being taught. But it's being taught by the vehicle of the story. And to to, to cut with the story, to run with the story, to try... and. And particularly to try and capture the suspense of the story, not to give away the punchline too early, but to wait until the author reveals it. Those kinds of things.
1: I would think it's also a challenge. There are aspects of it that that are very repetitive. Yeah. That would be a challenge week by week. People thinking, okay, I've heard this before. Even though there are slight differences, there is a, a lot of repetitiveness to this book.
0: Yeah. And I think um, the author himself speeds up and slows down and i think we should do the same so for example in the middle of both first and second kings you get a whole run of different reigns very mm-hmm. very quickly so in in chapters 13 14 15 16 you just rattle through loads and loads of different kings and one off the other and i think that is supposed to be fast forward look at the more quickly together so you don't want to take a sermon on each of the small kings that really would kill your congregation
1: mm-hmm. but rather
0: speed up and I think the point there is um compare them see see what's repeated mm-hmm. so I actually did all of chapters 14 and 15 um in one sermon mm-hmm. and it the point was uh compare the well it was a watch the downward spiral as the kings of Israel and Judah get worse and worse and worse mm-hmm. but as I say to take them individually would be a mistake. Mm-hmm. Whereas at other points, the the author really slows down. So Hezekiah, he gets a whole section of the book to himself because he's very important. So you want to do Hezekiah probably in two or three sermons, whereas Shalom, Manahem, Pekahiah, Pekah, they, they don't deserve a sermon each.
1: You called your series God's Superheroes. That's
0: what we called the section of the book that was dealing with Elijah and Elisha.
1: Okay, w- why? <laughs>
0: Well, if I was Marvel if I was on the Marvel board and a Christian, I would say it's about time you made the Elijah Elisha films, the movies. Um I mean they're they're fantastic. They're unusually in one one or two kings, usually the focus is on the king. So King Solomon gets the first chunk of First Kings mm-hmm. and then the big kings in um, in Second Kings are people like Hezekiah and Josiah. But um in this particular middle of the book the end of first kings the beginning of second kings the focus isn't on the king but is on the prophet Elijah and Elisha become the center figures they're interacting with kings but the but the focus is on their ministry
1: and what they're doing
0: yeah and I think the really interesting thing is that they come in the well this is a big issue actually fun saying the whole book um, the kingdom of Israel splits in half after the reign of Solomon and um, because of his idolatry And there's a civil war and Jeroboam leads a rebellion and Israel breaks off from Judah. And then you get the two stories side by side. So sometimes the author's focusing on Israel, sometimes the author's focusing on Judah.
1: Yeah, see, I think you're hitting on the other thing that makes this book really confusing. I I think about for most of my life, I mean, I grew up very saturated in the Bible. But I'd be embarrassed for you to know how late it was that I really understood this divided kingdom business in terms of the historical timeline. Therefore, the difference when I'm reading books like First and Second Kings, the differentiation between Israel and Judah, to follow that you're going back and forth from north and south, is challenging as a reader, and I think as a teacher, there's also a huge challenge there.
0: Yeah, it, it is challenging. And the two kingdoms are quite different. So the north israel is in the north it's confusing because of course israel is the name for the whole country before the split and then it becomes the name for the north um israel is worse than judah there's two reasons for that because um the line of david so god's promise in in 2 samuel 7 that there would always be a king on david's throne in his line forever um the succession of, of kings in the line of david are in the south so the kings of judah are all descended from david but in the north there is no legitimate succession. So people just seize power. They, they amass an army and invade. And they, uh, it changes between different tribes all the time. Um, that's one difference. The other difference is Jerusalem and the temple is in the south. And that's the centre of where the law is. That's the centre of orthodox worship. Whereas right from the beginning in the north, you remember in 1 Kings, um, King Jeroboam I, he builds these golden calf shrines at Dan and Bethel and they become a centre of idolatry, and he sets up his own priesthood. And so um, all the way through 1st and 2nd Kings, we see that Israel is worse than Judah. But the tragedy of 2nd Kings is Judah goes the same way in the end. So it's it's as if Israel slides downhill very fast, and then Judah is, is sliding downhill a bit more slowly, but going the same way.
1: So I listened through a number of your sermons on 2nd Kings, and I wrote down... A number of things that were, I thought, distinctives, uh, especially of maybe even your your first sermon in your Second Kings series So on Second Kings 2. And if you don't mind, I just want to walk through some of those things because I felt like they were really exemplary. You know, we hear someone and we think, wow, that was really clear. That held my interest. It also moved me. It challenged me, it got to Christ, and we we maybe hear someone else do that, and we we think, wow, that's what I want to do. So I just want to try to break down some of the ways you did that, and maybe you can talk to us a little bit about some of the choices you made and what mm-hmm. what caused you to do that. All right. One of the first things that I noticed you did in your Second Kings 2 sermon, uh, you just started right in talking about watching a television show. Line of Duty, your, your Netflix reference, you used something that you knew the people in your congregation could totally relate to, this idea of finishing a season and you're waiting for the next season to come. It, it caused me to be, okay, I'm excited to see what's going to happen in this new season. Yeah, yeah. Then as you dove in, you read the text. Your reading was not flat. It was dramatic where the text was kind of funny or where the text was interactive, you were kind of funny or interactive. I I guess I just think so many teachers just can read the text in such a flat way. And it seems like, especially in narrative, you just can't afford to do that.
0: Mm. I think it's really hard to read it unless you understand it well as well. So we always have two readings in our services and one of them is that kind of supportive reading it might be from the new testament if we're doing an old testament book or but the the reading that we're going to preach on is usually the preacher that reads it because you know where the jakes are and where the suspense is and because you've understood it i think it's unusual in in our churches to have the preacher doing the reading but i think we think that's a really valuable thing you can read the sections that
1: are going to have import later you can read them in such a way it's going to catch their attention a little bit more because yes. you know where yeah. you're going.
0: We did an exercise, actually. I was trying to do an exercise with people at at St. Helens' Bishopsgate on training readers. Oh yeah. oh,
1: yeah.
0: And it's quite fun. So we, we, I got people to read a sentence and to try and put the emphasis on a, a different word each time. So you could, take, I mean, you could take any sentence, but it's amazing how much, how much you can convey by your intonation. Mm-hmm. For example, I'm reading Two Kings chapter 2 verse 15 Um, and I say why don't you read it where you emphasize that it's that Jericho is the important thing so you read now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them they said or you can read it when you say it's the sons of the prophets that's a significant thing now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them so you can decide and of of course you want to be able to make meaningful emphases but only the preacher or only the person who studied it will know what the meaningful emphases are.
1: As you began this sermon you did the dramatic reading of the text but then immediately after reading the text you posed a question. Uh, Your question was how do we know that Jesus is the savior judge? Now that might not be the most natural question people would assume after you read this very dramatic text in second kings. So my thought was, okay, you've obviously studied this text and you know where you're headed. And so at the very beginning, you're stating a question that's going to, in a sense, set it up for where you're headed and what you're going to deliver because you want them to be thinking about that question all the way through. Would that be an accurate description of why you would have done that?
0: Yeah, and you want, someone said to me, you want to ask the question that the sermon is going to answer. Yeah. And it has to be a question that people care about. So if I just said, now, here's our question. What is 2 Kings chapter 2 about? And some people think, I don't care. I mean, I guess a mature Christian cares, but not everybody cares. Whereas if you can show somebody this is a question that you would like to know about, and this passage is going to answer it for us. Hopefully you've at least grabbed people's attention for the next 10 minutes we'll say
1: is that almost your go-to style or format for a message that you do have this place you're going and that as you're thinking about how you begin you're going to read the text and that the first thing you're going to go to is how do i set it up to get to that question i'm going to answer
0: yeah, that would be the normal method, yeah. And so so actually your introduction comes last in your preparation. Yes. So you spend all the time working out where you get to, and then only then can you write the beginning. Yeah. So yeah. I would usually that's- write the introduction last. Yeah,
1: that's quite often the case for me too. Yeah, sometimes I write the conclusion before I've even put together the message, because it serves as a guide. And it helps me keep from going off on tangents, for one thing, if it's not going to serve getting to that point. But it helps me helps me to get there. All right. So then you you presented Elisha succeeding Elijah, and right there at the beginning you tell us that it's going to turn out to be a prediction of John the Baptist, kind of turning over his ministry or being succeeded by Jesus, and that this is strong evidence that Jesus is God's Savior judge that's introducing something when we have barely gotten into the text yet is very foundational about where you're going and something that i would imagine 90 percent of your audience had never heard before
0: i'll t- I tell you my my working in this so let's do it the other way around let's start with with two kings chapter two and say what's it about so it's the succession narrative where elijah is taken up to heaven in a chariot And Elisha is shown to be his true successor. So what is the point of the sermon? The point is Elisha really is the true successor of Elijah. And it seems that a lot of the details of the chapter are about that. So the fact that it's um, that Elijah parts the waters of the Jordan and goes across. And then Elisha, taking up his cloak, parts the waters of the Jordan that goes back across. And then you think, oh, yeah, okay, so he definitely is the successor. And then there's some sceptics who are not quite persuaded And then eventually they get persuaded. But as a point for a Christian audience, right, so now I want everybody to be really, really sure that Elisha really is the successor to Elijah. And you're still thinking, okay, but why do I care? One of the really fascinating things about the Elijah-Elisha story is that it's, I think, one of the clearest places of typology in the Old Testament. So places where one story foreshadows a later story. And I think in just, in extraordinarily many ways, Um, John the Baptist is the fulfillment of Elijah, and therefore Jesus is the fulfillment of Elisha. And just as Elijah hands over to Elisha, so John the Baptist hands over to Jesus in a really, really similar way.
1: And the first half of that, I think, is more familiar to people than the second half. Just because there is so much Old Testament and even New Testament making clear that John the Baptist is fulfilling the ministry of Elijah, But it's that next step of typology that I think most people are not familiar with the connection between Elijah, Elisha and then John the Baptist and Jesus, that that would be new to people.
0: Yeah, I think I guess that is true. Elisha is probably less well-known than Elijah because he's not mentioned as often in in the rest of the Bible. But I think that is because Elisha is the Jesus character. So one of the things I kept saying through the series was Elisha is the Christ figure in the book. He is the foreshadowing of Christ. He's actually even got the same name. So Elisha means God saves, just as Yeshua means Yahweh saves. So he's Jesus popping up in advance, Mm -hmm. foreshadowed in the Old Testament. And I wanted people to know that straight away, because I thought the question of is Jesus the real thing? That's the question all of us care about. But actually it's related to the question of, is Elisha the real thing?
1: You're talking about Elisha as the one who saves. Throughout your series, you call Elisha an assassin. Yes. Why?
0: Well, it's because of the way that Elisha is... I always get the two confused. I I have to pronounce it emphatically. Um, Elisha is introduced back in 1 Kings chapter 19... And it's the famous passage where Elijah is very depressed because the nation hasn't repented. It's just after the great, the glorious showdown on Mount Carmel where the prophets of Baal are defeated. And everyone cries out, the Lord is God, the Lord is God. But Ahab and Jezebel, the king and queen, they don't repent. And Elijah realizes that unless the monarchy returns to the Lord, then the country will not return to the Lord. One of the things we keep seeing in 1st and 2nd Kings is what the king does is what the people do. And a bad king means an apostate people. So Elijah is very depressed that the people haven't repented or that the king and queen haven't repented. And he gets sent to Mount Sinai. And um, it's the passage with the fire and the earthquake and the wind and then the still small voice. And then God says to Elijah, and this is the bit that people, I think, forget about that chapter. Um, After the still small voice, God says to Elijah, go and send the three, and I call them the three assassins. So Hazael, king of Syria, Jehu, king of Israel, and Elisha, the new prophet to succeed Elijah, are to kill everybody. Uh, They're going to bring God's judgment against his apostate people. There will be a remnant, he says, 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. But the three characters who are going to do the destruction, Hazael, Jehu, and Elisha. So the first time we meet Elisha back in 1 Kings, we are anticipating him bringing destruction and judgment. The real surprise is that when Elisha shows up, he doesn't do very much killing people. He does a little bit. And there's the famous passage with the she bears that get called down and um, and kill the young men. Um, he does a bit of judging. That shouldn't surprise us. We're expecting him to be the judge. The really surprising thing is that he does so much saving and rescuing. So the one who is... Announced as the judge comes and brings salvation. And when you reflect on that, you realize actually that's exactly the same as the Lord Jesus. So we're used to Jesus being a saviour, but many of the passages about the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament, you think when the Messiah comes, he's going to come and be the judge. And Jesus, of course, will be the judge when he comes on the last day, but the judge first comes as a saviour. So that's why I call um, Elisha the saviour judge, the one who's going to judge, but first saves just like jesus is going to judge but first saves
1: i just finished a book that'll be coming out this spring called saints and scoundrels in the story of jesus and the first chapter is on john the baptist my thought about john the baptist is after he's been the one to even recognize jesus in the womb he leaps for joy when mary's presence is there and he's the one who recognizes jesus behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world And yet there he is in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus. Are you the one or shall we be looking for another? As I looked at it, it seemed to me that John had so immersed himself in the Isaiah scriptures about who the Messiah would be and that the heavy note to him was on judgment That's why he's always talking about fire and an axe to the root and all of that. And so it makes sense that Jesus responds to him using one of those Isaiah scriptures, but drawing out the part about how he will heal and cause the lame to walk and bring good news to the poor and the captain of those things. Having that in my mind and then hearing what you said, it just so seemed to fit together that to see... Elijah and Elisha is to see that same thing, this, this judge who comes to do miracles to save and yet he will come to judge.
0: You're right. It's pretty clear that John the Baptist is a fulfillment of Elijah. I mean, he wears the same outfit. So I always say to people, if I turned up um, at your house wearing a blue leotard with my underwear on the outside with a big <laughs> yellow and red letter S on the front, you'd say, why have you got a Superman costume? But when John the Baptist shows up with a camel's hair cloak and leather belt, they think, oh, why are you wearing the Elijah costume? Because that was 2 Kings chapter one, verse eight. That was what Elijah was famous for wearing. So that that's pretty clear. Um, but then Elijah hands over to Elisha at the River Jordan. And the spirit of Elijah comes to rest on Elisha. And that is evidenced. Um, John the Baptist hands over to Jesus at the River Jordan and the Holy Spirit comes on him like a dove, Um, Elisha has the name God saves, Jesus has the name the Lord saves, Um, Elisha's, even his miracles, so he multiplies bread to feed a crowd that's too large for the amount of food that they've got, and there's leftovers. There's leftovers, those kind of details, oh my goodness. Yeah, so God's clearly set up history so that we get the Jesus story in advance in miniature here, and then we see it again.
1: Another thing I noted in your teaching is that because we are once again dealing with huge sections of text that rely on things that have come before and you're recognizing that those who you're teaching that day, maybe they weren't there when you taught first Kings Mm -hmm. uh, or a previous message. And so you have to repeatedly include concise summaries of things that happen in advance. I think that's actually a skill that we as teachers have to develop. I'll find sometimes, and I think, okay, I'm going to go to the text, and I'm going to read these sections of text that apply to that. But then I'll I'll get to a point in my preparation that I think that's going to be too complicated. I want people I'm teaching to be in the text and see where I'm getting it, that I'm not just making it up, and for them to develop being able to find things in the Bible through that kind of thing. And yet, I realized as I was listening to you, If you had had people flipping back and forth and reading big sections of text to understand some of the elements of the story that they needed to understand in the history to get what you were communicating, that would have been terribly confusing for your listeners and made your talk so incredibly long.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think you want to be really selective and think what are the essential bits of, what are the essential flashbacks? Um, And we have a handout that we give to the congregation. And I'll often use that to try and make, so I'll I'll actually write flashback and I'll insert the verses there so people don't Ah. even have to turn their Bible. So you just, everyone's just got one passage open, which is the passage we're studying, but the flashback passages I'll put on the handout. The text or your summary Um, of it? The text, but as small as possible. So I try and think what is, if I had to really choose just two sentences that are necessary for the flashback, what, what are they gonna be? And I'll print them out. I think if you're in a sermon where you have to flick back and forward, people get lost. And especially the newcomer to church, you know, the non-Christian who's walked in for the first time. It's just overwhelming. Whereas if you've got one passage and then there's a sheet that says, here's two flashbacks and and the verses are, are right there. It's just trying to make that less confusing, less complicated.
1: So something else you had on your sheet for this message in uh, Second Kings 2 Was you were not only comparing Elijah and Elisha to John the Baptist and Jesus. Yeah. You went further back. There's a larger pattern here in the scriptures. There's also Moses and Joshua. Mm -hmm. And you used what you put on your handout to help people process that. So talk to us about the comparison and then what you chose to put in writing for them to help them with that.
0: I like diagrams just because my I background too. is in science, so yeah. So Moses hands over to Joshua, just like Elijah hands over to Elisha, just like John the Baptist hands over to Jesus. So you've got three successions and they all line up. Moses is a bit like Elijah, is a bit like John the Baptist. Joshua is a bit like Elisha, is a bit like Jesus. And there's just so many different connections between them, it's, it's crazy. How do you know that Joshua is the successor to Moses? Well, because what's one of Moses' most famous acts is he walks up to the Red Sea, holds out his staff and it parts. That's a signature move for Moses. So Joshua goes to the River Jordan, holds out his stick and it parts. And you think, ah, this Joshua guy, he must be the new Moses. Well, of course that's exactly the same way as Elijah hands over to Elisha by parting the water by parting the water. Um, and then it's at the same water, at the same River Jordan, that John the Baptist hands over to Jesus. One of the things I love about typology is you couldn't make it up. And only a God who is in charge of history over a thousand years can can do it. So going back to that sermon, I said, how do we know Jesus is the, the real saviour judge? What kind of evidence do we go for to, to persuade people that we should take Jesus seriously? I mean, Christian experience, he's changed my life. That That's true eyewitness evidence Jesus really rose from the dead the tomb was empty and so on that that's true but I think one of the big ones in on the Bible's own terms is fulfillment the fact that Jesus exactly matches the chave and that he ticks all of the boxes all the different prophecies come together and the New Testament makes quite a lot of that I mean even the apostles in their preaching they make a lot of that so Peter on the day of Pentecost trying to persuade the crowds that Jesus really is the Christ he does it by fulfillment. And I think we tend not to do that. And probably it's because our culture doesn't know the Old Testament very well. I mean, what's the point in telling people that Jesus fulfilled scriptures that they don't know? But I think it's wonderful when you see it, you think only God could line up history to match exactly the the shadow and the fulfillment in this way.
1: When you were preaching this message, you referred to growing up that you would... You would see and be amazed by a prophecy, something like in Micah, uh, that the Messiah was going to be born in uh, Bethlehem. And, And I so related with that because I think my growing up, that's pretty much the only way I understood fulfillment of the Old Testament had to do with those kinds of specific prophecies you're talking about a very different kind of fulfillment, but this is the kind of fulfillment that at least for me, for most of my life was a huge gap in my understanding of the Bible. This is the part that has been missing, was missing for much of my life. And therefore it's the part that thrills me to grow in my understanding of, and want to communicate to other people. And I'm not sure why it's even more powerful to me than that other kind of prophecy. I mean, we need them all. Um, but these these this fulfillment of these patterns and people events they're so deeply convincing that the bible has one divine author and that he's he's not only the divine author of the bible he is the sovereign god over history yeah right my number 7 of my list of 9 of things you did you were very helpful in Uh, helping your listeners to understand the import of geographic and historical references that might not have jumped out to them immediately in the text. Not only are we not very biblical literate about the history of the Old Testament, I think we're very geographically challenged. So often mentions in the Bible of specific cities, towns, locations, they're just interchangeable. Because maybe we don't have a mental picture of the geography and we don't understand these things in history. So I noticed that when you taught 2 Kings 2, and a couple references come up. In fact, you, you read them in your sample reading earlier. There's the mention of Jericho yeah. in, in this passage. And there is the mention of Bethel. Mm-hmm. And then there's this mention of 50 men of the company of the prophets. Now, for a lot of us, we would read the text and just kind of run over those. But as a teacher, you helped to bring out why those are significant. And they would have been significant more likely to the original readers, but they aren't as much to us. Mm -hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, thanks. Well, firstly, I just encourage people, you think, how would I find this? And I think the answer is just if you preach the whole book over a couple of years, you start to learn those things. So I wouldn't have known that Jericho is really significant. But because I preached a sermon on First Kings, chapter 16, where the author talks about a guy called Heel, who b- rebuilds Jericho and these terrible. i mean, bet he loses two of his sons in the process. He loses his firstborn son and his youngest son. And then the author in First Kings tells you this fulfills the promise made by Joshua. Now, I'd forgotten about that promise made to Joshua. But because I was studying 1st Kings 16, the author reminded me and I went looking and I found it in Joshua chapter 6. After the famous bit about Jericho, you know, where they they walk around it for seven days and blow the trumpets and the walls fall down. And Canaan is conquered by the Israelites. Joshua pronounces a curse on anyone who rebuilds the city of Jericho. And he says, specifically, he'll lay its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son. And he'll set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son. Anyway first king 16 this guy called um heal rebuilds jericho i don't know whether he's unaware of this promise or um you know so they israel has become so pagan they don't even know the books of the old testament and um, that are already around like joshua anyway he rebuilds it he leaves the two of his sons now because i've studied that i now know that and i read bethel i think, oh, sorry I read jericho i think oh jericho is very significant because just Jer- jericho is the place of curse and yet Jericho is the place that Elisha saves people. That's very surprising. You expect Jericho to be the place that he would do his judging. And maybe even more important that the bit people find so difficult to read when Elisha calls down bears to maul these, these youths. And people always laugh at me about it because I'm quite folically <laughs> challenged myself. We understand it's not, it's not just his misusing his supernatural powers because he's annoyed at somebody mocking his receding hairline. These people are at Bethel. Now, again, if we know First Kings, we know Bethel is the place that Jeroboam I set up the fake shrine to the calf god, um, down in Bethel, the two golden calves. And it was the very heart of pagan false worship. And the fact they're mocking him isn't just because they don't like bald men. It's because they show contempt for God's true prophet. So here are the um, idolaters um, showing disdain for the one who's come in God's name. And so they die. And that's why And it it really helps to know this isn't just he gets angry. He's he's got powers. He uses them just to crush these boys. No, yeah. this is God's judgment against apostasy.
1: I think that's a perfect example of how these geographic references give us insight in the text. Because, yeah, you, you read that that chapter ends with him calling judgment on them. And you're just like, wow, that seems harsh and out of the blue. But I'm getting the idea from you that understanding Bethel as this place of idolatry because of that that place's history, that was kind of the key that unlocked your ability to understand what was happening there.
0: Yeah. Yes. The thing is, the author always gives you the key as well. So this isn't just I know loads about geography and suddenly realize it's if you read First Kings, he's talking a lot about Bethel and he's talking about Jericho. So the author is his own best commentator. But the trouble is often we, we read just the chapter for our sermons. If you just read Second Kings chapter 2, you'd never see that. But if you've worked your way through First Kings, then you remember, oh I, yeah, I remember he made a big thing about Jericho and there's a big thing about Bethel. So it's, it's just context is the, is the help. The author's already told us the answer. How about the reference to 50 men of the company of the prophets? Yeah, the number 50 comes up in the first chapter of Second Kings, and it's it's a very amusing chapter. It's a very funny chapter. It's all about a very pointless attempt to overturn God's word. So a king called Ahaziah gets a prophecy. Um, he doesn't like it. Um, and it comes true anyway. And he sends he wastes three delegations of 50 soldiers in an entirely futile attempt to question God's word. So possibly that number 50 is in your mind. You think 50 stands for the pointless doubt in God's word. God's word is going to come true. And there's just that little echo, the number 50 has that connotation from chapter one.
1: And so how did you apply that when you saw these 50 men in the company of the prophets?
0: I think the whole point of the chapter is to confirm that Elijah is the true successor to Elijah. That's what it, That's the main idea. But there's this little bit at the end of the chapter where some sceptics aren't sure. And they go everywhere in search of Elijah. And Elijah says, look, you don't need to find Elijah because I'm here now. I'm his successor. He's gone up to heaven. They say, yeah, whatever. We're just going to go and check. Um, And the the fact there are 50 of them who go searching, I think, again, stands for a pointless doubt, a stupid Mm -hmm. doubt in what God's done. Pointless opposition to God's word. 50 men, chapter 1. Pointless doubt in Elisha's Legitimacy, 50 Men, Chapter 2. Well, the next
1: thing on my list that I noticed from your teaching is, as I listened to quite a few of the sermons, you always have a repeated, clear statement of both the point and application of the text. I'm assuming that you, in your study, you came to, okay, this is going to be my main point and application of the text. But I guess I find sometimes teachers, maybe even in their preparation, they come to that, but it's not stated either clearly or repeatedly in such a way that those who sit under the teaching, that when they leave and somebody says, well, what was the message about today? That they could say, the message was X. X so that it's not necessarily communicated in a way they can grab it and hold on to it. Let me just mention a couple of them. You you can tell me if I understood your main point, (laughs) if it got across to me on a few of them. In 2 Kings 3, you made the statement, We're expecting judgment, but instead receive salvation. The judge is the one who brings rescue. So I would have come away thinking about that. Uh, 2 Kings 4 made this statement, in a world under judgment, the safest place to be is sheltered with the one bringing God's judgment. Clear. Second Kings 5, it was a message on Naaman. And you titled it in a very provocative way, Can Human Traffickers Be Saved? So that in itself, that you're going to Call Naaman, who's got a slave girl that he's taken away from Israel and calling a human trafficker. That was a wow to me, although you didn't camp a lot on that point, but it was there. But your whole message was on being inclusively exclusive, repeatedly, inclusively exclusive. Exclusive. As you're talking about how in our world today many people would judge Christianity to be exclusive and see that as a negative thing, Second uh, Kings six, hopelessness, hopelessness. You kept making that clear, and you made the statement, "Resurrection is the ultimate antidote to hopelessness." In Second Kings seventeen, you made this statement: "How can a God of love send people to hell?" His judgment is right. His mercy is surprising. So I listen to those. I come away with those statements. Would you just talk to us a little bit about your preparation and how you come up with this statement and then how you use the statement in teaching in such a way that people can grab a hold of it?
0: Yes. So my method would be to try and come up with a sentence that, that encapsulates the point of the chapter or the couple of chapters. Um, I think the author has a point so I'm not deciding a sentence I'm sort of discovering a sentence it's a I I listen hard to find out what the author is saying but I want to try and summarize it because if I if I just say ten things you can smuggle a lot of muddle into a long list of things if you have to choose what's one thing you've really got to understand it to say how does this all fit together so I try and come up with a sentence um, and then I'll try and break that down into the the bits of that sentence that I use to make my points in the sermon. So often my points, rather than having a, a sermon that I don't know the traditional numbers is three, isn't it? There's no reason why it should be, but Christian sermons often three points. But rather than three points that go in different directions, I really want three points that add up to the main point. So I had for one sermon. In chapter four, I had um, in a world under judgment, Elisha brings miraculous salvation to the remnant who cling to him. Ah. That was my sentence. And I made my three points. The first one, a world under judgment. And I explained that. Mm -hmm. Elisha brings salvation. I explained that to a remnant who cling to him. And I explained that. So but it adds up to uh, a sentence. I think that way you can you can put in quite a lot of complexity and detail and texture without losing people. So my, my hope, I think people come to church with different backgrounds and different amounts of experience in understanding texts or looking at the Bible or, you know, some people are bookish. Some people don't read very well. Some people have been a Christian a long time. Some people aren't Christians. So what I ideally want to do is everyone can follow the main idea, but there's also things to stretch the mature Christian And the way way I try and have both is to make the main points really, really clear, and then under the points I can say some more detailed things.
1: And what strikes me about that main point sentence you just read is that it's so naturally going to provide your link to Christ from this Old Testament narrative. Yeah, that in fact it's it's clinging to the greater Elisha, we might say, the greater Yeshua who saves, uh, who is the, going to be the one who saves us from judgment.
0: I mean, that should always happen, shouldn't it? Because the Bible's about Jesus and God's spoken about his son and all his promises, of yes, in Christ. So it shouldn't be difficult to see that because that's what the Holy Spirit who inspired these words wants to do. That's a good
1: example of, of another thing I wanted to ask you about. And that is, uh, I think it could be easy in teaching a book like Second Kings, which is, uh, over and over again, especially later on uh, in Second Kings after we finish Elisha being the kind of the focus, all these good kings, bad kings. And if we have a desire to get to Christ, it could so easily be that we're getting to Christ the same way every week, that we're longing for a better king. And certainly if we had to choose one thing that we were going to get out of the book of First and Second Kings... That might be our takeaway, <laughs> that all of these human kings, they haven't lived forever, they haven't ruled in justice and righteousness, we need a better king, that's a big point. But in the individual sermons, and if, as, as you're, or as you're teaching through this, you don't want that to be your point every week. That's a big mm-hmm. yawn. How did you keep from it sounding the same every week, in terms of how you're
0: getting to Christ? Yeah, the author does it differently, so it just it's partly listening to the text. One of the really interesting things I've noticed in 1-2 Kings is, we talked already about the split kingdom, so Israel in the north, Judah in the south. It's the story in the south that gets to Jesus most obviously, because in the south you've got the line of David, and Jesus is in the line of David. So you look at the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew, and you see all the kings that you recognise from 2 Kings. But Israel, um, it just disappears into exile in Assyria, and off they go. Now... It's interesting to me that it looks like the two stories get to Jesus in different ways. So the Judah story gets to Jesus just by the, the line of kings being preserved. And even at the point that they are being carted off to exile, it is very clever. I mean, the the end of the book is so cleverly done because you're, you've you got this family tree in your head of all the kings and they're all being killed one by one by one. And you think the last one's been killed uh, you think that all of the lines have been wiped out and then it turns out there was one that you hadn't noticed, he's still there. And the author does it just to and then the very last paragraph of the book was, oh by the way, the king and the line of David is is still alive. And that's the thread that takes you through to Jesus. So God preserves the Messiah even through exile. The line of kings all the way through that's the Judah story. Whereas the Israel story, the kings go nowhere. I mean there's no line of succession. They're all going to be taken off to Assyria. But it's in the middle of the Israel story that you get these two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and you get this amazing shadow. So there's actually a lot of variety, even within the book. The, in the north, you have the prophets who are a type of Christ. In the south, you have the kings that are in the line of Christ. So even within the book, there's just different ways of, of getting to Jesus. You did that
1: so beautifully in your message, your teaching on Second Kings 17, because the way you got to Christ... Was you here's these things happening in Samaria, uh, which would be kind of shorthand for Israel because it's the kind of the capital city. And in your message on Second Kings seventeen, you went to John four, where there's this Samaritan woman. So you helped your listeners understand these are the descendants of the people that we're talking about from Second Kings. And here's this Samaritan woman who comes to the well and meets Jesus. And you brought the two passages together in in a way that really moved me personally. You said, to the people of Israel, you're talking the second Kings passage, God had said, I can't stand the sight of you, get out. And then here's Jesus in Samaria to the woman at the well. And he looks at her and he says, I know everything about you. And if you turn to me, you can be saved.
0: It's so wonderful.
1: <laughs> it's just the beauty of the gospel message right there. So naturally, from the text, this beautiful contrast. It's really something. Hmm. Okay. So, my number nine of the things you did. Now, I got to tell you, I cannot see myself ever doing this one. <laughs> I might
0: you going to say? I'm thinking, <laughs> what is number nine?
1: I might hope to come up with my own twist on the, <laughs> uh, based on your purpose for doing this, but I don't see myself ever doing it. I, I, I look at you, it, it's surprising <laughs> that you used this, but what you did in every teaching session, I think on First Kings and Second Kings, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that you created a rap to include in your teaching for every session? All right, so talk to us about this.
0: Say, <laughs> so, well, firstly, let me say that I'm, as you can say, I'm not a natural rapper, and I'm, um, I'm a great fan of Shai Lin and some of your American rappers. So you probably got the contacts, Nancy, because I'd, I'd love him to record a version of it for me. And do it properly. So, in basically, a, um, a white English guy trying to rap is in itself quite an amusing thing. So, I, I'm not suggesting that I'm doing it properly or well. um But I do, I do love Christian rap, and I think it's you know it's a. I did it as a way of trying to give a little summary so that people could hold the holster in their heads. It started actually in a youth convention in South Africa in Cape Town. I read it, and I did, I wrote one verse a day for the talks, and then it sort of became a thing. But yeah, the, the idea of it was just, it's a bit of fun, but also it just helped people keep the holster in, in their heads. But it, if you want to have a laugh at an English guy trying to rap, then tune in. So do you want me to pull one of them from a recording or would you be open to a command
1: performance of one of your raps?
0: So I see if I can remember it without looking? Um, you, you have to do the rhythm, Nancy. We need a sort of, so it's a kind of stamp, stamp, clap, stamp, stamp, clap. When the people had an evil king, they worshipped Baal. A terrible thing, God said he's a fake. But if you're in doubt, let's see which of us can end the drought. Or if you prefer, light a barbecue. What's wrong, Baal? Are you sleeping? Have you gone to the loo? When the people see the fire, they exclaim, The Lord, he is God, and it starts to rain. Ahab and Jezebel won't repent, so miserable Elijah to sign thy scent. But God's not in earthquake, fire or wind. No more second chances, that's how bad they sinned. Instead, God dispatches the assassins, three. But tells of 7,000 who ain't bowed the knee. Raymoth Gilead is the test. Shall we go, Micaiah, or give it a rest? The others all said what we want to be true. Only a pessimist would listen to you. So off to the battle Ahab goes in disguise. But God's word always comes to pass and so of course he dies. His son is just as awful when lying in bed sick. He sends the Baal of Ekron but his men return too quick. For they were intercepted by a man of hairy gown who told them there's no the chance at all your king is coming down. Up in the chariot the prophet goes, leaving his successor to deal with God's foes. Elisha's now the man with Elijah's cloak. Elisha's now the water-parter prophesying bloke. We're expecting the judgment to come. Instead, Elisha raises a Shunammite son. A poison stew is healed, the sons of prophets fed, as Elisha multiplies 20 loaves of bread. But the assassins finally arrive. None of God's enemies is left alive. <laughs> Apologies to proper rappers out there. No, listen no, to this? no, 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 no apology needed. I-
1: I just can't imagine how long it took you to write it and then prepare to deliver it. I, it's mind-boggling to me.
0: But it is, I mean, raps and poems, it is taking your mind. i like, I still remember that like a year later. So. How do
1: you think that helped you get across the message you wanted to do? <laughs> well,
0: yeah, you'll have to judge whether it does or whether people just were amused. I did it, I did one and That's stanza. not a bad
1: thing to be amused, right? In the middle of a talk, yeah. <laughs> to, to break the rhythm of our teaching otherwise to kind of call people back and hear it a different way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it just meant, I mean, I originally did it on a conference because I wanted to summarize the story so far at the beginning of each talk. And so I just, I did, I added an extra stanza to the rap each time and uh-huh, uh-huh. as we built up the story.
1: On a couple of episodes of Help Me Teach the Bible, at the end of them, I have sung with Lig and Duncan. And people tell me all the time that they love the singing with Ligon Duncan at the end of his episodes. Um, I'm I'm, I'm not going to attempt to rap with you, but I don't know. This may exceed the popularity of even singing with Ligon Duncan. I don't know. (laughs) Uh, Well, why don't we close this way, Andrew? Uh, Of course, there's so much of Second Kings we haven't covered, but what you have presented to us has been really helpful. You've handed us some good tools to dig deeper in our own uh, pursuit of understanding and being prepared to teach. Second King. So maybe you could finish this way. How has your own digging so deep into this book, what kind of impact has it had on you personally?
0: Let me come back to one of my favorite chapters, and it, it has become a precious chapter to me Two Kings, chapter five, which is the story of Naaman, or as I put it, can human traffickers be saved? Because the whole question of is Christianity inclusive or exclusive? It is a difficult one because rightly necessarily we are exclusive so jesus said i'm the way the truth and life no one can come to the father except through me um we've just been studying the sermon on the mount it was jesus who said the way is narrow that leads to life and few find it um so it is it is exclusive and often the church is berated for that we're told that we're bigoted and uh, narrow and we only care about ourselves and to hell with everybody else literally but What I love about 2 Kings chapter 5 is it's it's the most beautiful defense of exclusivism, which is also, in a different way, beautifully inclusive. This servant girl who's been trafficked, she's been kidnapped by Naaman in one of his raids on Israel. She finds herself working in slavery for Naaman's wife, and Naaman is a leper. And this little girl says to her mistress, If only my master was with the prophet in Samaria that is Elisha, he would cure him of his leprosy. And it just seems to me this is an absolutely remarkable reaction because it's remarkable because it's very courageous because to bring up the L word in that household, it would have been controversial, right? So this is not a a subject of conversation that you risk talking about his leprosy. It's courageous. It's also amazingly compassionate. I imagine that his leprosy would be the one consolation to her, that the man who kidnapped her took her into captivity at least he's leprous and she would delight in that but instead she wants him to be cured which is amazingly gracious and and compassionate but then it's also inclusively exclusive and i just summarized it with these two questions um how many ways are there to be saved only one o- only the prophet in samaria your syrian doctors can't cure you of your leprosy you'd be wasting your time with them there's only one way to be saved, but who can be saved by that one way? Oh, even you, sir. And I, I love that, that it's a narrow path, but it's open to anybody who will follow it. Um, only the Lord Jesus can save you. Only the Elisha character can save you. But he'll save you, sir. And so here's an outsider, a foreigner who's done terrible, terrible things. who comes and humbles himself before Elisha, the Christ figure, and is... I mean basically he gets converted and he becomes a a member of god's family it's a beautiful thing um and i i think if we can state our exclusivism and inclusivism together in that way how many ways are there to be saved Uh, only one but who can be saved by that one way anybody can Um, from any religion from every any sexuality from any background if they will come and repent and trust in the lord jesus and I, i love that and it makes me proud of it being, ex- it, it's exclusivism as a beautiful thing rather than an ugly thing, mm. inclusively exclusive. And then, of course, at the end of the chapter, you get Gehazi, Elisha's servant. And there's a very horrible story where he tries to take advantage of this new convert and wants money from him and so on. And I think he's, he is racist and bigoted. And he talks about naming this Syrian in a kind of disdainful way. And that's the ugliness of, of exclusivism. We don't want to be exclusive like that. We want to be exclusive like the little girl. If only my master knew the prophet in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. If only you were to know the Lord Jesus, he would save you. And to be able to offer that to absolutely everybody with wide open arms, even as we insist that there is only one way. So I I think it's a beautiful defence, I think, and it's made me not ashamed of the exclusivity of the gospel because it's also open to all. That's
1: so beautiful. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for helping us teach second kings thanks nancy you've been listening to help me teach the bible with nancy guthrie a production of the gospel coalition sponsored by crossway crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV bible christian books and tracks learn more about crossway's gospel-centered resources at crossway.org